Every Day is Earth Day is supported by Minnesota Valley Federal Credit Union with two locations in Mankato since 1934. It pays to bank where your part owner member NCUA more at mnvalleyfcu.coop. And Every Day is Earth Day is also supported by members of the Executive Board of the South Central Minnesota Clean Energy Council. Find out more at smcleanenergy.org. Good morning for Every Day is Earth Day today. I have author Jake Biddle. He is a staff writer at Grist, where he covers climate change. His work has also appeared in the New York Times, The Guardian, Harper's Magazine, and a number of other outlets. He is the author of a book called The Great Displacement, Climate Change, and the Next American Migration. And it's a fascinating book. It's the untold story of climate migration in the United States and what it means for all of us. Good morning, Jake. Good morning. So, Jake, when I think of migration, I think of birds. So when I saw the title, The Great Displacement, and then about migration, talk about that title and how you came to have that migration as the title. Right. So when I started to work on the book, I noticed that a lot of people, you know, policymakers, journalists, had started to talk about the idea of climate migration, right? People leaving countries that were affected by climate change and moving to the United States or moving to Europe. And I kind of I had started to research, you know, what was happening with climate change and housing in the United States. And the conclusion I kind of came to was that what was going on in the United States, some people were calling it migration, right? But what it really looked like was internal displacement as people lost their homes to climate change, right? So migration kind of implies a, a one-directional, intentional movement, usually international, right? And I kind of wanted to reframe the conversation around climate change to emphasize that, you know, most movement that results from climate change is it's very chaotic, it's unpredictable, people move, you know, multiple times, they move away from somewhere and then they move back. And I was trying to find a word that would kind of capture the sort of roiling uh, nature of climate-driven movement in the United States. And displacement was like a ubiquitous word in housing issues, which I used to cover. I thought it was apt for what's happening. And now climate change, of course, dominating a lot of the headlines. And a lot of people still think it's a future thing. And we imagine that as the global warming gets worse over the coming decades, that millions of people will have to scatter around the globe, et cetera. But you don't want to necessarily think about it in the the future tense. It's It's here. Right. Yeah, I think that that was the other thing I was trying to emphasize with the book, right, is that especially when people think about you know, losing one's home to climate change or being displaced as a result of climate change is either going to happen in a couple of decades in the United States or perhaps it's already happening, you know, in sub-Saharan Africa or Southeast Asia. And what I wanted to emphasize was this is already happening, you know, to tens of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people in some years, every year in the United States. Uh, we just don't call it climate change, right? So we talk about a hurricane when the hurricane's passing over Louisiana or a wildfire during time that it's burning in California, but we don't really focus on the thousands of people who end up moving after the fact over the course of the, the years that follow. You really look closely at different communities and individual people in those communities to tell the story of these big natural disasters, for example, the flood. And you somehow, how did you get in contact with these people and, and find out their individual stories and follow them? I found that just fascinating and amazing research. Yeah, that was an interesting process, right? So I picked disasters that had happened a couple of years before I had started working on the book, right? So I started in 2020, and I was looking at a lot of things that had happened in 2017, 2018. And what I I basically did was, 
in a lot of cases, I would look at the uh, homes in the area that had been destroyed by the disaster, and I would look at the um, addresses, right, and just search them up in the white pages, and I would call the people who lived in those homes and had stayed. And then from those people who had stuck around, I got connected with, you know, their former neighbors or people they'd been to church with or people they used to work with who had no longer lived there, right, who had decided to move on or been unable to rebuild their homes. Basically, then I would go to the places, right, and talk to as many people as I could. Uh, But for the most part, yeah, I just sort of worked out from, you know, whoever was still there. That's what amazed me is that, I mean, you actually went to all these places. I'd like you to give us some of the examples that are in the book. You talked about a community called Greenville. It was there, and then it wasn't. Tell us a little synopsis of that. Yeah, this was a community in the in the mountains of California that burned down during the, the Dixie Fire in 2021. And I thought it was a good place to start the book because it really was you know, that immediate, right? This is a community that it hadn't really suffered any large wildfires, even though it was in a very, very vulnerable place. And if people were still able to get insurance, you know, which they can't really do anymore. But then really the fire tore through it in, I want to say, like half an hour. And... At that point, you know, after the town had basically been destroyed, that's when all these sort of um, warts and problems started to come to the surface, right? Like people couldn't afford housing anywhere else. They didn't have enough insurance. They couldn't rebuild. There was nowhere else to go, and FEMA took a long time to help rebuild, right? So everything was kind of fine, and then all of a sudden the fire kind of ripped the wound open, and everybody sort of started to see the, the flaws in the system. So I thought that that was really apt. And it was, there was a lot of history, you know, a lot of culture that just sort of vanished all at once. And you talk about these communities that literally vanish. And what happens is, as you mentioned, then sometimes they start to clean things up and then some somebody buys up all this land and they start to renovate it again and have other people move in only to, because it's a bad place to build, suffer the same thing over and over again. And it's usually the poorer people, as you talked about. Yeah, right. So there's there's kind of a, a vicious cycle going on in a lot of parts of the United States, and, and it has to do with fires as well as hurricanes and floods, where for a long time, you know, there was no um, incentive for developers not to build in a given area. Right? They could build a home, sell it to somebody else, and then the flood risk was there the whole time, but people didn't know about it. And then, you know, because we don't have strict controls on what happens after a disaster and because the the government doesn't have enough resources to make everybody whole. What happens when some people pass on a home from person to person, you know, they'll sell for pennies and get out, and then the next person sits there for a few years, and then it floods again. So, yeah, there's just a, there's a big land use problem that's connected with climate change, right? We've built a lot of stuff in places we probably shouldn't have, and it's very, very difficult to undo that once it's already happened. And the other thing I note you talked about, when you're along a river or a place that's going to flood, a lot of times you fix it in your community so your community doesn't flood. But what that does is back up the water so then the community upstream, then they will flood. And so it seems like a, a vicious cycle. Yeah, there's a there's definitely, a I guess you could say like a tragedy of the commons problem, right? Or just like a there's a collective action problem where every community wants to, this is especially the case along big rivers, especially the Mississippi, where people will build levees to protect their homes or protect their farmland. And when you build a levee on one side, or it's going to cause flooding on the other side. So we saw this happen over the course of the 20th century in the Mississippi River, where you know, basically there's a really high levees on both sides now. The water can't get over except during big flood events, and that creates a lot of pressure farther downstream, right? So that's why there was, for a long time, bad flooding in Mississippi and Louisiana and New Orleans, because the le- everyone wants to protect their own land, right? 
Well, we live in the Minnesota River Valley here in Mankato, Minnesota, and it's where the <clears throat> Blue Earth River meets the Minnesota River, which goes into the Mississippi River. So our town back in, I think it was the 50s, and then again in 1965, had huge floods that basically covered everything. And so now on each side of the river, we have these huge concrete levees that Mm -hmm. basically protect this area. And there have been sometimes in more recent years when it'll get to three feet within the top of the concrete. And it's kind of scary to look at and think about that, that there's no way this is going to happen because wouldn't they have built it so it wouldn't happen again, but then things are happening somewhere else that may be pushing our water <laughs> higher. So so how do you deal? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of a scary thing. Right. I mean, not to not to scare your listeners, right, but <laughs> it's sort of a law of nature that there's, there's no levee that you can build so high that some future flood may not overtop it, right? And so, I mean, for years we've seen that most levees are built by the Army Corps of Engineers, right, which is like the Federal Civil Works Agency. They have projections for what they think is, you know, reasonable rainfall to expect, and they build the most expensive levy they can afford to build, given the projections that they have, right? So that sometimes leads them to underestimate the future risk of flooding in certain places. That's happened all over the Mississippi River and other parts of the United States. So, I mean, I think that that a lot of experts would say that the, the only real solution to this, right, is you have to kind of get out of the way and let nature take its course. And that's obviously not an easy thing to do, but there have been smaller communities, especially in the Midwest, that have, after a big flood, they basically said, we're going to move uphill. You know, we're going to take our 100, 200 houses and move them back a half a mile and create what's known as a setback levy, right? Like a a big open space where the flooding can come. That's obviously not easy to do once you've already built a town or a city, you know, like Mankato, but it's probably the only permanent solution to a problem like that. You mentioned insurance a lot throughout your stories about how initially a lot of homes were covered by insurance because there were these only going to be a 100-year flood or a 500-year flood, so the likelihood was so not going to happen that that's why they would insure it. And all of a sudden, now these 500-year predictions are happening more and more often, and they're not insuring a lot of that anymore, so people aren't being able to afford to get new housing once they get flooded out or burned out or whatever may happen. Right, yeah. So in the case of uh, wildfires and hurricanes, it's the most insurance for windstorm and uh, fire damage comes you know, through your homeowner's insurance policy. And I think the statistic is that in California, after 2017 and 2018 wildfire seasons, the damages from those seasons wiped out a quarter century of underwriting profits for the insurance companies that were operating in California. So understandably, right, I mean, they cannot make money paying out that much damage every year and taking in the premiums that they have. So their options are either raise prices, which nobody likes, or get out of town, which also nobody likes. So you're left with people who bought insurance at relatively reasonable prices, and now the price keeps going up to a point where they can no longer afford it. Or their company says, I'm not giving you insurance, and you have to go with either basically kind of like a a substandard public option or without insurance, which you know, your lender probably doesn't like that. So it really, I think it just basically, the bottom line is that it contributes to making home ownership much less affordable for a lot of people in states like California and Florida. Now, one of the things that I found alarming in the book was it said, over the next 50 years, millions of Americans will be caught up in this churn of displacement forced inland and northward in what will be the largest migration of our country's history. Well, guess what? We're 
inland and northward. So what does that mean for us yeah, here? Yeah, very much so. What does that mean for us here in Minnesota, Wisconsin, Midwest area? Yeah, so I think it's a little hard to say what it means in the in the short to medium term, right? Like, as you probably know, most people in the country are still moving to places like Arizona and Florida. Everyone seems to like, you know, there's been a long trend of moving away from the Midwest to the South and the Southeast. But over time, you know, those places will stop being able to sustain that much growth. And so I think probably the the most likely outcome is that over the next several decades, you know, not anytime soon, investment will kind of shift to places that have not seen it for the past few decades, right? So places like Cincinnati, Buffalo, Minneapolis, like these are cities that, you know, they already exist, they're already well set up, and in many cases, they were built to house more people than they currently do house, right? So in a long-term trend, you could see people, especially, you know, companies like starting to say, well, maybe we'll put our headquarters here, right? Or people maybe choosing to retire up there if they're from Arizona. It's not like there'll be a, a huge tide of people arriving in Mankato, you know, on a certain day in, in 2030. But it is almost certain that over the course of the century, you know, more population and more investment will have to start flowing back out of the, the most vulnerable parts of the country, like Arizona, Texas, Florida. Jake, in your research, you talked about communities disappearing completely, things like folks on the coast of Florida, for example, or California. So some of those, you say, well, yeah, people are moving down there, but that's not necessarily the best place to be on some of those. You want to live on a lake or oceanside, you may be in trouble. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, it's it's unlikely that a, a city as large as, like, Miami, for instance, will ever go away completely. But I think that the places that are most vulnerable are the, the least well-resourced and the most rural parts of the, the coast, right? So a place like rural Louisiana or the Florida Keys I wrote about, those are places where they're so vulnerable and they're, the population is so sparse and the resources are so thin that there's really no amount of investment that could be justified that could save them, right? Like it would be billions and billions and billions of dollars to protect them from climate change in the long term. And there's not billions and billions of dollars worth of property values or cultural resources there that the government would deem necessary to protect, right? So the math just doesn't work for those communities, right? I mean, in places like Miami, I think you'll see the federal government underwrite really, really big investments to protect them from hurricanes and storm surges, sea level rise. But all the smaller places that are sort of in between the lines, so to speak, they are really, really vulnerable to just sort of um, die out over the next 50 years. And we've already seen that happen in certain parts of the country. I mean, you cover the disasters like hurricanes, fires, all those sorts of things. What do you think is the most worrisome of all the different types of disasters we have? Is there anything or are they all Hmm. all kind of equally (laughs) problematic? Yeah, I think th- I think probably the most worrisome one, and it's one that I didn't talk so much about in the book, but I've written a lot about it since because it's not really related to housing displacement. Probably the most worrisome one is is extreme heat, right? Just because it's it's so deadly compared oh. to flooding or fires, it, it kills far more people than any other kind of climate disaster. And we've seen, you know, heat waves can sneak up on relatively temperate cities. Like this happened in Portland, Oregon, for instance, two years ago, where they're just not ready. There's not air conditioning infrastructure. There are no cooling centers and people just aren't prepared for it. And in those cases, you know, the elderly, young children, they can be in real, you know, mortal danger very, very fast. And it's not like you can just run away, right? Like a heat wave covers an entire state. It's not like flooding where you can get to high ground and wait for it to pass. So that's probably the one that, you know, from a human perspective, concerns me the most. You've been a climate change 
author for quite a while, writing for different venues. How long have you been doing it, and what trends have you seen over those years? Yeah, so I mean, I I think that um, I mean I started in 2019, so not not super long, oh. five years almost. But yeah, I used to write about housing. I mean, I, I think even even in the the four or five years that I've been doing it, though, I think that you know public awareness of the problem has certainly increased. I think that the willingness to, to I think that the the trend and movement away from fossil fuels has picked up quite a bit, and to a degree that I don't think people would have seen as possible back in 2018 or 2019, frankly. And I do also think, you know, when I started working on the book in 2020, I did have the sense that people really didn't see the climate change. People didn't really see climate change as a present tense problem in the United States. But I actually think that's changed a lot, you know, not even because of the book. Like, I think that people now, after the last few years of of really, really bad disasters and extreme heat, especially, they sort of seen like, this is this is happening right now, and I think that's motivated a lot of the the public interest in solving the problem as well. You have a chapter on why should this a desert be, and we've just been talking about heat, and now temperatures have been going up, and water sources are drying up, and you talk about the deserts probably expanding in the United States specifically. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a another kind of math problem in in the Southwest, right, where there's just so much water being used for for farms and for real estate development, and there's less and less of it every year, right? So it's not to say that everybody there will one day run out of water, but the the growth pattern that's obtained in parts of California, Arizona, and the rest of the Colorado River Basin, like that's just no longer going to work. So there's there's kind of like a reckoning coming, right? Where either you can there's no way to find more water, right, or to make it rain. So what you have to do is probably cut usage, right? So that could mean sort of ripping up some of those cotton and alfalfa fields or, you know, sort of ceasing to ranch as many dairy cows, or, you know, you could maybe sort of stop building new residential subdivisions in the suburbs of Phoenix. But there's a, a, a really overdue sort of um, corrective that's that needs to happen in those parts of the country. And it's sort of the issue has been forced. People were talking about overuse of water in those places for almost a century, but the issue has been forced by the recent drought, which has really, really dried things out. And sort of caused some once reliable water sources to vanish. How do you fix those things? I mean, like you said, people know about it or knew about it, and now it's to the point of no return almost, it seems. Right, yeah. So, I mean, the the, the fix to the the broader problem of climate change is, is at once very complicated and very simple, right? Like, well, there's almost a universal scientific consensus that we just have to stop burning coal, oil, and natural gas, and then the planet will slow down in the process of warming. But, you know, fixing the the problem of land use and vulnerability to climate disasters is also really complicated. Like, I think that the the number one thing that most people would say, right, is you have to make space for nature, whether that looks like, you know, getting away from the edge of the river, the edge of the water, or getting out of the fire-prone foothills, or, you know, sort of saying, well, maybe we shouldn't be growing alfalfa in the desert if, you know, there's not enough water for it right now. But that's, that's really, really hard to do, right? Mm-hmm. Those are places where people live. Those are industries that people rely on for unemployment. So it's, it's just hard to just snap your fingers and fix the problem. But we sort of know that you can't engineer your way out of it. You also in the book talk about how this is going to be harder socioeconomically for people who are in the working class, for example. And it's climate change is really unfair in that sense in, in who gets hurt versus others who have the resources don't suffer as much. 
Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, I think I saw this over and over again, you know, after a disaster, like a flood, right, where everyone's home would get destroyed in the city when it rained too much. But the people who had, you know, ample insurance coverage and they had more equity in their homes, they could build back in a year. I mean, obviously it was inconvenient and annoying, right, they had to go find somewhere else to live. But in a year they were back in the same house or sometimes a house that was even bigger. But people who, you know, didn't have much equity in their home, maybe they were headed toward foreclosure or they were renting, right, and they had no equity, they had no payout. There was no resources that allowed them to rebuild, right? So that's a, that's a very simple example. But in almost every case, you know, you can see that a neighborhood where most people are people of color or where the average income is lower or people are renting rather than home owning homes, that neighborhood is way less likely to recover than, you know, a, a neighborhood that's similarly vulnerable to flooding, but where the, you know, average income and level of resources are much higher. So we saw this play out. It looks a little bit different in each place. But, you know, there's always a sort of, um, there's always a, a separation, right, after the disaster between the, the haves and the have-nots. As you researched this book, The Great Displacement, was there anything that really stuck out or surprised you as you were delving into all these disasters and what was resulting? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that surprised me the most uh, was probably the the length of time that it took people to get back on their feet yeah. after something like this would happen, right? I think because we we focus on the, you know, first few hours or days after a disaster, we sort of tend to miss this. But I spoke to people who had who were still in the process of recovering in some way, shape or form from Hurricane Katrina that happened like fifteen years earlier, right? Like they just never made it, you know, perhaps they'd owned a home before or they've been living in a relatively stable situation, like in, a, in subsidized housing. And after their home was destroyed in the flood, like they never made it back to another stable situation. Like they would rent for years, live with their family, and try to get a job, and then lose a job. And just like, I think that we don't really understand that when something like this happens, it, it can affect the, the rest of somebody's life, right? And it's, even when psychologically they may have moved past the, the trauma of the disaster, they're still living with the after effects of it. So I think that that really... I should have expected it in a way, right? But it was it was pretty surprising and a little bit overwhelming sometimes. Now, you report on climate change. I was just curious if you did any of the reporting on the fires that were in Hawaii that destroyed an entire community there, and if you have any thoughts on what happened there compared with what you've discovered throughout your research. Yeah, this is a really, really interesting, in, like really, really, really tragic event. And we have... I have two colleagues at Grist who were on the ground in, in Maui reporting on the fires. I wasn't there myself, but I can say that, you know, one thing that, first of all, this is, there's a direct relationship to climate change in, in the fires because the average rainfall on West Maui has decreased significantly, uh, overing to general changes in atmospheric patterns. But the second thing is that there's a, a, a real problem with like invasive vegetation where the, the colonial settlement of Maui and the um, aftermath of the plantation economy there has caused the, the native vegetation to kind of get wiped out by these really, really flammable invasive grasses. So it's creating sort of another vicious cycle in the ecology of the place that made it much more vulnerable to fires than it was before European settlement in the mid to late 1800s. So what do you tell people to give them some hope? Well, I mean, I think it would go back to what I said before. I think that public awareness of the problem has increased dramatically. And I think that, like, probably the, the thing that makes me the most hopeful, right, is that, you know, the as Bill McKibben says, the, the cheapest way to generate electricity now in most parts of the world is by, like, pointing a, a mirror, a photovoltaic solar panel at the sun and just letting it generate energy. Like, 
even if you know people really wanted to hold on to oil and gas, it's getting much cheaper to produce electricity with solar and wind. And so I think that even if you don't believe that you know there's ever any will to solve the problem, like from a purely mercenary perspective, uh, the era of fossil fuels has has started to end, and it's going to be a slow process, and it's going to be much slower than it should have been. But we are not standing still. I think that was the case, you know, maybe ten years ago. That was the way it felt. But it's no longer true that we're just completely standing still on that issue. And that that gives me some hope, tenuous as it might be. And what do you tell skeptics? I, I know I have a friend who's a meteorologist who thinks that climate change is just simply overhyped. And it's basically that's what it's all about. And I mean, we're in our third year of drought here in our Mankato, southern Minnesota area. And, and the heat that we've had, I see that, well, if this is just hype, I I mean, I, that would surprise me, I guess. So what do you tell those skeptics? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. It, it's really hard to argue about that, right? Because like you said, the scientific evidence is, is so overwhelmingly clear. And, you know, even every year, right, like new studies and new forms of evidence show up to make it very, very clear. You know, atmospheric carbon dioxide is what's making the world warmer and the carbon dioxide comes from burning of fossil fuels. There's not really anything you, you can say if somebody <laughs> wants to. To ignore that evidence, but I will say that, like, I spoke to many people in the process of reporting the book who didn't believe in climate change until they had, you know, seen sea level rise in their own oh. neighborhood, right? Like, look at many people in Louisiana and Florida who said, you know what, I didn't believe in it, but, you know, that island used to be there over there, and it's not there anymore. It's permanently underwater now. And I think that, you know, seeing it with your own eyes is, is another, it's, you know, it shouldn't necessarily be more convincing than scientific evidence, but I think for a lot of people it is. And so, uh, over time, I think many uh, deniers will will sort of see with their own eyes that that the denial. I mean, I won't think it's really work it's out. sad that you have to wait for something bad to happen to you before you, <laughs> you know, very do sad. something. Yeah, no, it's very sad. When you wrote this great displacement, how many people do you think have been displaced just over the past few years from the hurricanes and and the fires and all that? Did you? I mean, you, I saw it's one really figure. Really hard to say. Yeah, tens of thousands is what you I see in one. Yeah, part. I mean. I, I went with a pretty conservative estimate. I mean, if you look at the statistics for internal displacement in the U.S. from natural disasters, it gets up into the millions in, in most years, right? But that's people who've been displaced for, for any length of time, right? Even for a couple days. And so it's a much smaller portion that don't end up moving back. So, And there's really no comprehensive statistic. But the, the best estimates that I got from experts is probably in the tens of thousands every year. And in, in really bad years, like 2017, it, it's likely much more. What are you working on now in terms of writing or focus on for climate change? Ah, well, at Grist, we're working on some really, really exciting further coverage of the Maui wildfires. And we've got a big piece coming out soon about uh, how to protect cities from extreme heat, where we sort of designed a city that would be resilient, you know, at every street corner and every building uh, for heat. And that's really, really cool. How can people find out more about your book and about you? So I think my book, if you just go to the Simon & Schuster website, it's, there's a, the paperback is probably available for pre-order now. And then I think that probably the best way to find more of my work would be to go to grist.org and then to search my name, which is where you can find basically all the stories I've written for the past few years. And we are talking with Jake Biddle, the author of The Great Displacement, Climate Change, and The Next American Migration. Let me tell you, Jake, it is a fascinating book, and I'm so honored that I have a chance to talk to you. And, and I know you're coming to Mankato in November, I believe. So we look forward to having you, right. you come. And thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much.
Everyday is Earth Day is supported by Minnesota Valley Federal Credit Union with two locations in Mankato since 1934. It pays to bank where your part owner member NCUA more at mnvalleyfcu.coop. And Every Day is Earth Day is also supported by members of the Executive Board of the South Central Minnesota Clean Energy Council. Find out more at smcleanenergy.org.